thanks for everyone that's uh, pulling this together tonight. And we just want to continue with Colossians chapter uh, 1 and do the rest of the chapter, chapter uh, 1, verses 19 to 29. We've been looking at Colossians, and my title tonight is The Lord Jesus Christ and the Colossian Heresy. Now, I don't know, Keith, I, I, I missed about 10 minutes of your message last time. I don't know if you introduced anything regarding this, but um, speak a little bit about what maybe the, the Christians at that time were dealing with as far as surrounding thoughts of, of the day and, uh, and uh, how they, they uh, behave sort of religiously and um, the different philosophies that were out there. And, um, you know, for, for a long time I've, I've read some of these verses in this section here and didn't really understand maybe the entirety of what Paul was getting at, but when you put it in context of what he was speaking to, um, it really makes a lot of sense. And, and part of that is taking in the Colossian heresy and what that is. Um, and I'm just, I just marvel at how um, the Word of God doesn't hesitate to um, lift up Jesus Christ um, as the answer to heresy and, and what's the heresy of the day or what the heresy of the day was here. And um, we'll see that as we go through this, Lord willing, tonight. Um, see how Paul had um, taken Christ and put him in the center. And um, basically in verse 28, it says, Him we preach. And that basically that's what he presents as, as um, the arguments against some of this Colossian heresy. And um, even today, isn't it? We, we come together and... and uh, some of us stand up here, or even if it's teaching in a Sunday school class or whatever, you know, what, what is something that we can really um, do for the benefit of the hearers? And, and that's to lift up Christ. It says, Him we preach. And basically, that's what Paul was trying to do here. Um, if we're going to put effort into some public speaking, sometimes it's uncomfortable, sometimes it's a lot of work, sometimes it's, uh, you know, maybe... They're speaking to a, a group of kids and they're unruly or something like that. It's still worth it to present Christ and who he is. And that, that's huge. And uh, this is what Paul does here. Um, in the chapter 2, we see that the substance was of Christ. And it wasn't something of philosophy or traditions of men that he would hold up as, as being a guidance to the Christian life. And... Um, I know that the Holy Spirit here ultimately guides Paul in his thoughts as he presents them and he, and he attacks the, Christian, uh, the Colossian heresy, but it's an exercise from Paul as well, isn't it? As he got to know who Christ was, he basically had a blank sheet of paper and he, he, he wrote something about who Christ was. I mean, if, if we were given a, a blank sheet and, and asked to describe God to someone, what we would say, what would we say based on our experience and our knowledge about him? And, and here, is, here is what Paul is writing about, this magnificent person, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's just start reading. The, we'll read this, the few verses here. For it pleased the Father that in him all the full, fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. 
if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. And so <clears throat> we see Paul here with a, just a, a tremendous task here of confronting the closing heresy. We're just going to learn a little bit about this right now. And um, I'll put these slides up here now. This might be asleep here again, but... I won't blame you, James, don't worry. <laughs> so I'm going to put up a slide here about the, the area of uh, Colossae and where it was in relation to Asia. And basically, um, it was right on the trade route from Ephesus. You come down from Ephesus and, and go through Colossae, and Hierapolis was there, and um, Laodicea was there, and you then went on to... Uh, join up the Euphrates River, and this was a major trade route. And actually, Colossae, I guess, there it is. Colossae, Colossae I guess, faded into existence. I guess I, apparently it doesn't, doesn't exist today, but there we see a little bit of a map here, an explode, sort of, a, sort of a, a magnification on the top there, and you just see that, that trade route. So there was a lot of things that came in as a result of this. I mean, goods traveled through here, but also ideas and stuff like that. And basically in Colossians chapter 2, it says, Beware lest anyone uh, cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. And so some of these things were creeping in of which he wanted to address. Um, <clears throat> and then also, too, as we, we see today, there's a, there's, a, there's a tendency to move away from the gospel, from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, isn't there? Um, in, in this day as well, there was a, there was a tendency to, to move away from what the gospel was all about and what the faith was um, and, and the things of Christ. And so uh, Paul wanted to encourage the saints to continue in the faith, in that personal faith. It's not faith here. Faith means um, basically your personal trust in Christ. It doesn't mean uh, the body of faith in, in Christendom at large, uh, but it means a personal trust in Christ uh, he wanted them to be grounded and settled and not to move away from the hope of the gospel. And uh, this is what, what God would like to do in each of our lives is to bring us to that point where we can really sink into Christ. You know, and, and that can endure some of the, the storms that we have around us as the different ideas, uh, different presentations of things. Uh, we all come across them and it might lure us away from the hope of the gospel. Paul wants to bring the Colossians back 
to what the, 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 the root was, and that was Christ and, and who he is. So in J.B. Lightfoot, he's a, he's a theologian from the 1800s. He says this, the doctrine of Christ is here stated with greater precision and fullness than in any of the other epistles. And uh, it's true as we, we read through Colossians there, the, the chapter one story last, last week, we thought, we saw basically how Christ was lifted up, the preeminence of Christ and, and just amazing uh, language that is used to, to lift up Christ and who he was. And uh, so to attack this heresy, there was specific uh, ideas presented to the, the believers at, at that time to lift up Christ above this heresy. And so, I, like I mentioned before, I mean, it's, we, we don't waste time when we preach Christ Jesus. Colossian heresy here, then, elements of this. I mean, there's, there's lots of sort of talk about what this really was at the, at the day. So this is my best summary of what was going around in that day. And we see reference to this in the, in the book. Is if you read the whole book, you'll see reference to anywhere where I put sort of um, quotations um, Try and find it in the book. It's mentioned in the book in later chapters. So it was a mixture of Jewish religion. Some of the Sabbaths and new moons and dietary practices are mentioned here. Uh, syncretism, basically, it was a mixture of Jewish practices and pagan religion and magical practices, which led to the worship of angels. They saw angels as being uh, intermediaries between God and man, and they should be worshipped. Gnosticism is another common uh, theme here as well, and they figured that matter was evil. Um, there was a superior wisdom given to only a few. There was belief in emanations, that is, transitions from God to man. They, they, they became less divine uh, as you got further away from God. And so you can imagine what they thought of Christ as he came down to this earth. Asceticism is uh, living your life with one of two principles. So basically, as a result of having these ideas in your mind, you would live this way, one of two ways. You would either uh, consider the body as being evil, and you would want to neglect the body. We see that in chapter 2. And you would live that kind of a lifestyle, where you train the body to, to deprive it of certain things, of certain appetites, and therefore win over the body, win over that battle, and, uh, and progress in your life. Also, too, they thought that, well, if you're going to do that, you're going to make the body an idol. So there was another thought opposite to that. Funny, it's just, it comes from the same principle here, uh, asceticism. But basically, there, if you considered the body as an idol that you kind of subscribed to and kind of lived your life around, well, you would consider that an idol, wouldn't you? And then so there was complete indulgence in that. They would just kind of... Uh, just, disregard any notion of what the body desired uh, they didn't they just kind of didn't deprive it rather and they just kind of went to every sort of license and and practice that you could think of so there was sort of the the two opposites here that were going on in this type of type of uh, principle that they would uh, adhere to and so you could see a person possibly living in this in this way one of these two ways with this heresy so the Essenes were a particular group in the church with uh, rigid ascetic practices, and um, they were more strict than the Jewish people at the time. Um, they sent bloodless sacrifices to the temple. Um, they worshipped angels. They had uh, exclusive rights to the religious secrets that were out there. Only a few could understand really 
some of the secrets that were out there in terms of understanding Christianity, I guess, in some way. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the body, and um, the select few had a monopoly and a superior wisdom. And so these were, this, this idea was creeping into the Christian church at the time with these, with these thoughts. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, imagine living in that day, and the, the solution was to present Christ and who he was and all his magnificence to counteract some of these ideas. So heresy here, so here's the one heresy. I picked out three here that they mention, and I just picked out the verses that were, that were sort of used to attack these things. So the first one is there are religious benefits to a select few. So basically, um, Paul would say that this is not the case. In verse 23, he'd say the gospel that you heard. What was the gospel for and who was it for? It was for every creature under heaven. And so it wasn't to a select few. Um, the gospel, the hope of glory, was given to all people. In verse 26, the mystery which had been hidden from the ages and from generations has now been revealed to his saints. So it wasn't something that was hidden, but it was revealed to everyone, to the saints. And they had privilege, every saint had a privilege of knowing what this was, Christ in you. In verse 27, to them God willed. God, it was God's will to make known what the riches of the glory of this mystery was, and that is Christ in you again. These were not select for select few, but um, they were for everyone. In verse 28, it says that they, uh, Paul was, to this end, he lived his life. He would warn every man and uh, teach every man that he may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. So everyone could come to full maturity in Christ, every, every, every. It was not just to a select few. And today, it's not just to a select few. It's, it's to, to whoever comes to Christ, no matter what the past is, you too can become mature in Christ and all the things that he has to offer you. And I think it, it's wise for us as Christians to try to endeavor to this end, to try to labor and endeavor to present every person perfect in Christ Jesus. You know, if we could just communicate the benefits of knowing Christ and the truth that's in Christ, um, well, everyone else would benefit. And there's, there's no wasted time spent there. If we can kind of portray or communicate these things, these teachings of Christ to everyone around. So that was the one heresy. We have a second heresy here. The divine essence is distributed among angelic emanations from deity. So that means as, as you go from God to, to man, uh, there's intermediaries here, and that's where the, those were the angels, they figured. And uh, the, the, the deity was watered down every, every time a phase came into existence. And I don't know how that all worked, but that's what they believed. But here it says right off the bat in our verse 19, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. And um, this word fullness would mean to the, to the, to the Gnostic um, and, and to these people, Basically, it would communicate the pleroma, or the totality of the divine essence. Um, and it was a recognized technical term in their language. So if they would hear about you know, Christ being the fullness uh, of, of deity, they would know, they would understand that, that he contained the total essence of deity, that nothing was watered down, and that Christ was the fullness. And um, it, it pleased the Father. Um, we read on Sunday in Isaiah 53 that it pleased the Father to bruise him. And 
today we read here that pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. He was well pleased that uh, the totality of the deity was contained in a human form and it wasn't watered down. This would be totally contrary to this heresy. How could God, without losing anything of God, come down to man? Um, and they, they believe it couldn't happen, but this, this is what Paul is saying here, is that Christ, in all the fullness of God, came down in human flesh. And so we see here that he dwelled, and that's dwelled in, in, the, in the Son. <clears throat> all the fullness dwelled in the Son. The idea here, there was two words that were used for dwelling. There was a dwelling that maybe was only a permanent dwelling, like you'd go into Algonquin Park, you'd pitch a tent, you'd lift it up and go to another place, another campsite, you'd be transitory. There'd be another one where you'd go and, and you'd build a house, let's say across the road here, and you would stay there. That would be your permanent dwelling. Well, the word that's used here is that it's a permanent dwelling. It never left is the idea. And so the deity uh, never left Jesus Christ and it came to dwell in him at, in totality, in a permanent way. And then here's another one. There's only partial reconciliation, and it's through the work of intermediary angels. And so we see here, as we read these first verses here, it says, by him to reconcile all things to himself. So we see that Christ was used. It wasn't intermediary angel. It was Christ himself that bridge the gap and the total gap uh, between God and man. It wasn't a bunch of angels to do the mediation here. And he reconciled all things to himself, things on earth and things in heaven. And um, this speaks to those that, were, that came to Christ in this context. It's not a universalism where, where just because Christ died, everyone is reconciled. You had to come, and we, as we compare the rest of Scripture, you had to come and profess a personal faith in Christ to take advantage of this. But the reconciliation, the binding together uh, to be at peace with nothing between was, was totally done by Christ himself, and he was the only one who could do this. So in the mind of someone who's carried this heresy, this would not make sense. You mean that Christ Jesus was the only one that I needed? Now, he'd be the only one that would reconcile me back to God. Yes, that was the answer. It was, it was him and him only. And it says that by him in verse 20 and by him again twice in verse 20. We see that it was through the blood of the cross. They were used to sending the sacrifices bloodless. And they, they didn't uh, believe in the shed blood uh, notion, let's say. This really just means the death of the Lord Jesus. Um, and in the body of his flesh, they considered the body as evil. So this would go contrary to, to their thinking. Um, but the body of his flesh through death uh, was the way in which uh, Christ had brought reconciliation to the world. And so um, a little explanation there too. Angels were neither men nor God. And um, they could not represent then God and man. And, and Christ could do both, couldn't he? He could represent God and he could represent man as he was fully God and fully man. And so he did that for us. And this would go totally contrary to what um, the, some of them thought in that church at that time. We have a verse here that's a little difficult maybe to understand sometimes. I just thought I'd do a few notes on this. Um, so verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith. So these things that you were, you're brought to, um, 
that you were holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight was a result of your faith in Christ, and this is what would happen. Um, that was sort of a one-time thing, and, it, and the if kind of introduces an idea, well, maybe it wouldn't be one time. Maybe it's up to me to continue in the faith, and these are all applied to me then. And if I, my faith fails, well, then all these other things fail. But basically, that's not the idea here. Um, so I just took that word if and, and looked it up a little bit, and um, it doesn't indicate the uncertainty of Colossian believers at the time. Um, it's not an if of the future, like what would happen to me in the future if I lost my faith. It's an if of the past. That means a one-time event that happened to them as they came to Christ and professed Christ. Uh, these truths were applied to them. And it's basically an if of, uh, of truth that happened in the past, so it could be translated since. So you could use this, uh, you could translate the word if here, since you indeed definitely continue in the faith because it was a product of your genuine conversion uh, and you're grounded and settled, you're not moved away then from the hope of the gospel. And so um, the if does not infer that they were having second thoughts about continuing, but rather affirms the desire of those truly saved. And uh, the believers, true believers, will persevere because Christ is in their life persevering with them. And so I think that this, these sort of truths here and often good doctrine will help to establish us in our faith. And when the things of life come in and there's different storms that beat against us to challenge those, those uh, sort of uh, foundations, we can, we can see, be seen as being solid. And I think there was a resolve here that the believers had. Paul definitely had a resolve. He had a resolve that came in his sufferings. Um, so I'm going to speak about that right now, the believer's resolve and Paul's resolve. So the resolve is this, basically, to continue, to persist in, to adhere to, to stay with. You see a lot of, a lot of people moving away, let's say, from the hope of the gospel, moving away from their faith. Um, grounded and settled, the resolve here is grounded and settled. Grounded means more that you're, you're established by salvation on a solid rock. And settled refers, in this term here, the Greek word, refers to your life. If you are on a solid foundation, anything arising from that should be solid as well. And so it communicates the settledness is communicating the stability that you have in Christ as a Christ follower. And it's based on the foundation of salvation that is so solid. And I like that stability that's given, that's communicated here by Paul. But he had a resolve. He had a poise in his suffering, a certain poise in his suffering. Not that he, re, he, he, he um, enjoyed suffering, but he rejoices in the suffering in verse 24. And um, he had a purpose in his call. He was given something from God to do. And so he had a purpose in his ministry. He, he was called by God in these other verses. And then also the last verse here refers to his power and his service. So the resolve was able to give him a poise in his suffering. And the poise just means a gracious tact. You know, when we're suffering something, it's not fun, is it? And, and he's, we're not saying this is fun for Paul. But he rejoiced in the fact that he could partake in the sufferings of Christ. Any suffering that we would endure here, um, Christ is also suffering that for us. Now, he, this is not the suffering. He, Paul is not filling up that which is lacking in the afflictions of Christ here. 
um, in a redemptive way, of course. All the sufferings that Christ had in a redemptive way was done just by him and completed by him. But his life before the cross was lots of persecution, lots of opposition. And now after the cross, we live in that world too, don't we? Where we're opposed and we're, we're challenged and we're, um, there's exhausting service. Um, there's, there's pressing, there's, there's pressure and all this stuff. Those are the sufferings that Paul is referring to now. Those are the afflictions of Christ. And in a way, we can rejoice because Christ is enduring the same suffering with us. So Paul here is, is filling up that which is behind, filling up that which is yet to be fulfilled. That's what it means here. He had a, he had a fulfillment of the suffering of Christ that he would endure. He would know then that, that these sufferings were shared by Christ. They were the afflictions of Christ as well. And he could rejoice in that. And so he had a certain poise in this. Isn't it interesting to have a certain poise in the midst of suffering? And... Um, I know that in this last storm we had with the wind, I mean, there was a lot of things that kind of succumbed to the wind, right? But then it would be these odd things that wouldn't succumb to the wind. <laughs> and uh, one thing at our house, I mean, I had 10 trees, massive trees that fell around my property. And uh, there was an Adirondack chair that was down on the fireplace, a plastic Adirondack chair, probably $10 at home hardware. I don't know what it was. It didn't weigh a thing. But that was still nicely set by the fire. <laughs> and all these, these trees had fallen around it. But that's kind of like a poise in suffering, isn't it? And uh, just the, the fact there that he was rejoiced. It wouldn't get to him. No doubt, no doubt it did. I'm not saying that it was, he took it lightly. But, you know, when he understood it as, you know, that Christ was suffering still with him. And we see that when in Acts there when... when uh, you know, he says to Paul, you know, they persecute me, Paul. They don't just persecute you. And so Paul could rejoice in the suffering. He had a poise in that. And he continues the sufferings of Christ for the church. <clears throat> so purpose in his call, um, in verse 23 and 25, we see that he became a minister of this. He was very cognizant of the fact that God gave him a role to play. And he was very cognizant of the fact that this was given to him that, that someone else could have probably have done. But it was given to him as a stewardship. And it says here that these verses popped out at me today, this past week, verse 25, which was given to me for you. So he, was, he, he had a very strong sense that God had given him something to do, to, something to take care of. And it was God's call to the service of being a minister of Christ. And so has God given us something? What has God given us? We, we have the call to salvation. And that, that was strong and mighty. We have a call to service. Where is that? What have we done with that? And, and Paul was very cognizant of the fact that he, he understood his purpose uh, in, in God calling him. And so in the resolve, he... Uh, was also resolved in this. He, he made that decision to carry this out. Power in his service. Isn't this the last thing I'll mention tonight before we close? Power in his service. And uh, I think Paul got the right idea here. Um, first of all, in verse 29, to this end. You know, he, he thought it very, very important. We, we have, we've had a lot of things over the last two years, right, that have come at us. And um, 
not only outside the church, but inside the church. And I think one of the best things we could do is present Christ. Him we preach. We can't go wrong with him we preach, right? And it's to this end. He thought it just extremely beneficial to labor to the point of exhaustion, to strive as if he was an athlete training for a race, training for a sport, disciplining his body, um, not allowing certain uh, enjoyments, perhaps. I don't know. Like just, The idea is an athlete, striving as an athlete, training for an event. Laboring is to the point of exhaustion. So to this end, um, he went. And he got it right. He had a, po he had a power in his service because he understood that there was two things at work. There was his labor, but then there was God's working as well. And um, as he worked hard, he didn't um, just say, okay, God, I did 80% uh, of it, you take the rest. He did 110%, 200%, and then he just let God do his part that only God could do. And he was convinced, he wrote these things down, that God was working in him mightily. And I'm sure he saw things that just floored him, basically, um, in his life for God. And um, though we may feel tired, though we, we may feel lots of opposition, um, though we may feel that we're sort of um, training maybe for no reason, um, every athlete wants to train for an event, right? You just don't train for no reason. Um, still, God is working in us mightily to do a work. And, and he was resolved in the combination of the two, his labor for God and God's labor for him. And that's it for tonight.